Okay. Something I really like about this podcast. Me. Is that it's showing. Me. Well, yes, you. Me. You, for starters. No, don't but, start with it. End with it. But what I really like about the podcast is that it's forcing me to watch things that I wouldn't normally watch for starters. And secondly, a lot of these things I really like. I've never had to watch Nightmare Before Christmas thinking critically about it. I'm just finding so many things that I really enjoy through this podcast and I really appreciate it and I'm glad that we are doing it and I love you guys and good because we're all dying today surprise <laughs> I was about to say it sounds almost like we're trying to end, like disband this forever <laughs> did I not tell you end of podcast end of podcast I'm Catherine Johnson, King of the Pumpkin Patch. I'm Maddie Deadly Nightshade Gray. And I'm Robin Kopic, and you're listening to Grow Up, a Saturday morning podcast for nostalgic millennials, where we deconstruct and reimagine the shows of our youth, try and figure out what's meaningful about them and how they shaped us into the people we are today. This week on Grow Up, we are doing The Nightmare. Before Christmas. Because it's our Christmas episode. Is it a Christmas movie? That's my first question. It's both. I yeah. think so, Yeah, too. no, it, this, I think, is very, it very definitely fits into the Christmas movie category. Absolutely. I think it's both. Like, because I had never seen, okay, Virgin Alert. I had never seen this movie before. And <gasps> I, I asked a lot of people beforehand. I was like, oh, I got to watch Nightmare Before Christmas next week. And everyone started like shitting their pants and coming in their trousers. And they're like, the Nightmare Before Christmas, you're going to watch it. And I was like, is it a Halloween or Christmas movie? And everyone was like, it's both. You can watch it at any point between Halloween and Christmas. Which is supported by the fact that it was released at the end of October in 1993 so that it could serve as both a Halloween and a Christmas movie. Um, It's a 1993 stop-motion Christmas-slash-Halloween movie, I guess, produced by Tim Burton and Denise DeNovi. Not just the fact that it has, you know, it has Christmas and Halloween symbols and elements in it. I think it fits the category of Christmas movie because it's about Christmas night, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a, about delivering a special experience for people in the way that you know only Santa can do. It's kind of about the true meaning of Christmas, which is what a lot of. I think it's a much better Christmas movie than Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I do too, and um, I watched one of those like the making of the Nightmare Before Christmas movie, mm-hmm. and it was actually inspired by Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Also, The Grinch. And also The Grinch. It was the reverse story of The Grinch, where The Grinch is somebody who, like, hates Christmas and wants to to take it away, where Jack is somebody who's never experienced Christmas but really wants to. So he steals it from people who already have it. Not realizing that that's not how Christmas is done. Last week, one of our major topics was, like, why is Rudolph a Christmas classic? And I wish Christmas classics were better. And I think this is much more deserving of a Christmas classic status. 
I absolutely agree. Um, so who's in this movie? We've got Chris Sarandon as Jack, who who's Chris plays uh, he you plays are. Prince Humperdinck in The Princess Bride. Oh, oh that's cool. Yeah. Uh, we've got Danny Elfman, who's the composer for this movie, singing for Jack. He was we've got gonna... Catherine O'Hara. Yeah, he was so good. No, he was gonna uh, voice Jack, and then like someone at the studio was like, "We don't like him," and he got very mad. So now oh, I... that's very sad. So now there's a lot of like anxiety when I watched it like the third time and knew that. Um, and Catherine O'Hara played Sally. She's been on SNL. She was the mom in Home Alone. She's been in For Your Consideration. You know. Yeah, it very Popular much actress. did not seem like Catherine O'Hara. That voice. Absolutely yeah. not. <laughs> very much. Not not a typical casting for her. But like delightful all the same. Oh yeah, she was fantastic. I think all the voices were very good. I just really liked this movie. <laughs> I know you do. You don't know anything about me. This thing happened this week where everyone came to me and were like, so? So what'd you, uh? What'd you think about Nightmare Before Christmas? <laughs> yeah. And like, and I was like, it was fine. <laughs> and that pissed a lot of people off. I got punched at work. <laughs> because I said for it. For not liking Nightmare Before Christmas. I don't for, not, for not like loving. it. I don't not for like not it. adoring. Yeah. Because you have to understand the world I live in where Nightmare Before Christmas has had a. We always say, like, oh, it has a cult following, but this has had a gigantic cult following in the cult I belonged to, the emos. Mm-hmm. So just everyone around me has worshipped it my whole life. It's as if I had never really uh, heard the tale of how Jesus was born and then heard it when I was 25. And then everyone stood around me and went, all right, how'd you like the story of Christmas, you know, and like, it's yeah. like that, where it's like everyone has had it their whole lives and has really adored it. And, um, and I, yeah, I thought it was good, but I expected to sh- poop all over my pants. So what do you think you would have thought about it when, when I was a you kid? were a kid? I would have, yeah. I would have loved it. I did think it was very good. I loved the music. Yeah, the music was so good in this movie. Like, we sometimes talk about, like, music and how it doesn't really fit in with a movie. So, uh, like, Labyrinth had some music that we didn't really understand why it was there. But this one was so intentional with its music, and it was so good. It was legitimately a musical. I was very aware of a lot of the songs in it, because they've done covers of most of them with, like, Panic! at the Disco and Marilyn Manson and stuff. And so, like, some of the songs I hadn't heard... I've now have had just stuck in my head and I really loved like Jack's Lament and Sally's song and oh, I love uh, Sally's song. but particularly what I don't understand because it's such an annoying song. I really like the kidnap the Sandy Claus. <laughs> so the whole sequence with the little kids like running and they're like dee, 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 Sandy Claus, let's cut off his toes. Like it was such ooh. Whew. That's fire. That's fire right there. We should probably tell everybody what this movie is about. Me, the um... pumpkin king. (laughs) (laughs) What happens to you in this movie, Catherine? I am tired of my life. I'm so good at Halloween. And everyone thinks I'm so good at Halloween that I've grown so weary that I decide to steal Christmas. Well, that's not really... I mean, it's not about stealing Christmas. That's not his it's intention about, at all. It's about doing it himself that year. Yeah, he wants he wants the joy, the feeling, that warm feeling, you know, the Christmas feeling inside of him. And he sees it. 
being done by others. And, and he's like, that's, that's for me. I need it. And my community needs it. I need to rally my community so that they will also experience this wonderful thing that I felt. So do you guys want to jump into already, like, the biggest theory that surrounds the movie about what it's about? Uh, tell me. That it's about, yeah, well, that it's about cultural appropriation. Okay, here's the thing is, I literally, I didn't, I didn't know that that was a theory, but that's what the vast majority of my yeah. notes are about. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely, like, the running theory of, like, now that we're adults, because, like, I watched a lot mm-hmm. of stuff where people were saying as kids, they assumed that the theme was just, you know, like, always do the same thing. Don't step out of line. <laughs> but it's not about that. It's about enjoying something so much from a different culture. And instead of just trying to be a part of it, deciding that you can do it better and taking it for your own. Yeah. Oh, wow. And, and I just realized, like, this is such a good way to get people to understand cultural appropriation. Because, you know, when you're saying, like... Iggy Azalea is being culturally appropriative and people are like, well, just because she's white doesn't mean she can't rap and stuff. And it's like, this is such a good way of explaining it of she can Um, rap, but she can't try (laughs) to sound like a black person. (laughs) Like, that's not her. While simultaneously beating down all the black people around her. That's not for her to do. Yeah. And the big thing about, like, this idea of cultural appropriation and halloween and christmas it's like nobody ever tells jack that he can't participate in christmas nobody ever tells him that he can't like be a part of it it's just like he has to take it over for his own i was not a fan of jack (laughs) because he's kind of a dick for most of this movie i thought sally was the best character i agree I think it's not a very feminist movie. No, it does not pass the Bechtel test. It does not. There's one girl. I kept just waiting for, you know, Sally to sing. And she only had one song where Jack has like five or six Mm -hmm. of him just talking to himself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I couldn't like, even from the moment that you're first introduced to her, she's just hiding behind like some stock or something watching Jack and then shrinking Mm -hmm. back into the shadows. Like, so it's, it's just this like, male fantasy of the like pining smitten woman who yeah. can only think of you all day like this is the one person who's so truly perfect that too shy to even know that or to even like let him know that she's there but there are a lot of feminist things about sally like she's very smart and she gets herself out of these situations with her cunning and very independent um throws herself out a window and explodes and sews herself back together Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. She like as a character, I think she has a lot of uh, things as well about her, just her personhood that don't justify this plot point. And she's also the only person, even though it's Halloween Town, basically, it's like a version of Halloween Town. She's the only person with any like mystical power. Mm-hmm. She has visions like that that manifest in physical form. She and has like, like this branch from a. Stuff. I know, but yeah, like, there's let's no take magic. Let's step back here. There are ghosts and stuff. <laughs> yeah, but there's no magic. Uh, and you you know that I always pay attention glows. to magic. Zero's nose glows. That's because he's a Rudolph. Um, the vampires won most blood drained in a single evening. How do we know they didn't compel anyone to get all that yeah. blood? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't see any supporting Bottle. evidence for any other magic. Me. Oh, shit. But, like, she has these physical visions that, like, manifest 
in physical ways in the actual world that she lives in where she has this little tiny sprig of a christmas tree and it like becomes very pretty and beautiful and then it catches on fire one way especially very early on in which we're introduced to her i want to compare her to uh, her dad he says you're mine you know i own you to his daughter it's so to, interesting I mean, that you think of it as a father-daughter relationship yeah because well, like I he, yeah not. he made her to me it's yeah. more of like a husband-wife yeah he's trying to he was trying to create the perfect woman for himself i think it's interesting you read it that way because it definitely can play both ways i don't think he was like having sex with her but i think that was probably his ultimate intention because by the time he realizes that sally is not gonna work out he makes another one and he makes a wife for sure yeah i think either way it is a very strong portrayal of the function of patriarchy like you know if it's a father to daughter it's still like there's a lot of men out there who have this mentality that they own their daughters mm-hmm. that they are like the protector of their daughter that the like the owner of their their daughter's body uh that they make the decisions for this child yeah. like just even even in my own family life like you know I, my dad's a great guy but he has these unconscious like these biases where the things that he would let me or my brother get away with, particularly me, he would take a hard line on with my younger sister. There are certain things that he would feel uncomfortable with her doing. I never dated anyone in high school, but if I had wanted to, he wouldn't care. But like with my sister, he's always so uncomfortable about it. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just this culturally ingrained idea that the father, the patriarch, literally, you know, the patriarch has, has ownership of, the the women in the family right yeah especially because he actually physically created her so like yeah. that does make sense that you read it as a father and daughter relationship so that scene in which he says you're mine i you know i own you sally has a moment that like immediately i was like okay she's a pretty badass character she's so it, it's like this this theme of ownership where he's like trying to say i own you followed almost immediately by themes of liberation where she's mm-hmm. talking about leaving getting out how she like literally poisons him with nightshade over and over and over again (laughs) like repetitively Um, she gets away with poisoning him like several times in this movie (laughs) but the thing that stuck out to me the line was where he says to her we need to be patient that's all yeah and her response is but i don't want to be patient she is the one in the much worse situation obviously she is the one to whom bad things are happening through through that political lens you know, neoliberals versus like feminists right where you have somebody who's in theory saying that they want to change the status quo who's trying to make things different trying to come up with these clever solutions to do it but but we have we just to, be need to be patient but coming up against somebody who's like now nah, just wait like changes happen slowly but yeah. for the people that, like, those changes need to happen. Changes don't happen slowly. Or they don't have to. And in the meantime, everything sucks for those people. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just all of us don't want to run out the front door in a yellow vest and start breaking stuff. There's a part of us that doesn't want to fucking do that. And that's an easy way to feel better about it is if we convince ourselves, well, actually... It's totally all right if changes happen slowly. We don't need to be busting everything and freaking out and uprooting our own lives to make a difference. It's fine if we're making a small difference, which it's not. 
It's people are dying. How do we apply that in real world? In the real world? We fucking riot! Jesus. Okay. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Riot! (laughs) I'm going out this door right now and rioting! Alright, we're taking a riot break. Who's with me? Uh, we got our wrap gifts last night, and one of them was we all got- Because you, you have to wear a safety vest a lot at my job, and they got a safety vest with, like, our names on it, and I just, like, looked uh-huh. at my coworker and was like, you know what they do with these in France, right? What? They riot! The yellow vest! <laughs> <laughs> when I said safety vest, I meant the yellow vest! Let's go Riot! I have a personalized riot vest now. That's really awesome. Let's go. Um, let's go. We do. Let's finish the podcast and then we riot. No. <laughs> no riot break. No. Grab your microphones. Let's go. <laughs> Anyways, I I want to keep talking about Sally. I just love Sally. Yeah. It makes me want to be Jack just so I can date Sally. <laughs> Did anybody else think that the, like, romance between Jack and Sally was super, super forced? Nope. No? I didn't. I liked it. didn't even pay attention to her that whole movie. I know, but he is aware of her and thinks she's clever. He's a dumb boy, and he's just so in his own personal torment of, oh my god, I'm so good at Halloween. My life is so hard. (laughs) And... But when he's, like, asking her to make the Santa Claus outfit, he, and she keeps saying, it's a mistake, Jack, and he's just like, don't be stupid. It has to be you. No one's smart enough to make the suit besides you. So I think he's aware of her mm-hmm. and likes her. When she gives him, like, her that dinner, you can tell he's very enchanted with it, and when he looks out the window, she's gone, so the thought mm-hmm. doesn't really go anywhere else. But I think there's definitely something lurking the whole movie. And then when he finally gets his brain in the right place and Santa Claus says the best thing of the whole movie, when he's like, you should listen to her, which is what I was thinking the whole time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And he says, you know, like, he's like, I don't know why I never realized. And that's, yeah, it made sense to me. Maybe it's not that it was forced. Maybe it's that I think that Jack doesn't deserve her. Correct. I don't think he deserves her, but I, but I'm an advocate for I love, I really like Sally, and Sally likes Jack. That means that she deserves Jack. I kind of, okay. my in- inclination is to agree with you, Madison, but when that kiss happened and everything, my initial inclination was to say that this felt forced. So I started writing that down, and then I tried to revisit the reasons that I thought it felt forced. And I actually mm-hmm. came up with several reasons uh, that, the things that I was thinking were, were actually more supportive of, of Catherine's argument. That mm. like that as a story in terms of the writing for it, they actually did set it up writing wise. But I agree with you that like Jack didn't deserve her. And my uh, initial complaint is the largest one. With the initial complaint being that I don't really see any reason why she would love him to begin with. Yeah, I never really saw what it was about him that made her so infatuated. I th- I don't think. Go ahead. I think there's plenty we don't see about about Jack because this is yeah. a strange chapter in his life. But I'm just coming from this as Sally's my girl. Whatever she wants, yeah. she gets. And Jack is king of the pumpkin patch. And everyone loves him the most. Uh, yeah. As displayed in that scene where they just were like, you make farts, shark. Jack, I don't know. They keep saying things. Yeah, and clearly the town all loves him. 
he's the best. He's the celebrity, and so I'm like, yeah, you you can you get you get him. He's the best. You have him. Go for it. It's your he's yours. <laughs> That's um, fair. I kind of want to talk about the social hierarchy of Chris or of Halloween Town. Of Halloween Town. Yeah, let's do it. I keep getting confused between Christmas and Halloween, but so we have a mayor who answers directly to Jack. Jack is a pumpkin king. Where is everybody else in the hierarchy? I'm right here. No, but does does this mean that like Jack is actually some sort of like monarch figure in this world? From what I understand, each of these holiday towns have like a king and it's okay so it's like the mythical creature that we attribute to that holiday where like the easter bunny would be like the king of easter town but then obviously there would be a mayor that's actually running the diddly diddly of easter town so that Mm -hmm. the easter bunny can suddenly get obsessed with thanksgiving and just sit in his apartment (laughs) and you know there's actually like a video game that came out in about i think 2005 for the nightmare before mm-hmm. christmas and it's like a prequel oh my god and it's a pre you just said prequel <laughs> and it's a prequel and it explains oogie boogie mm. that he was actually the king of his own holiday and it was like the bug holiday other and it was called like one of the nicknames was crawloween and he lived oh, in this God. world of bugs, but then that holiday stopped being relevant and the like town disappeared. So he tried to take over Halloween Town and Jack had to save everybody and fight him. And then oh, he wow. he banished him to the basement of the treehouse. Okay, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm really glad I know that now. I thought it was really really something there. I have a clarifying question about Oogie Boogie. Yeah, let's have it. So why is it that when his smock is removed, all of his bugs fall down? Have you ever just held a bunch of bugs in your hand versus holding them in a bag? Yeah. They fall. <laughs> no, there's they, they stay in your hand because they're bugs. No, bugs don't just they aren't, cling together. They don't together. just defy gravity. I don't know what kind of bugs you guys have been hanging out with, but... Okay, from, aside from Sally, who was everybody's favorite character? Sally. No, aside from Sally, because Sally is clearly the best character in this whole yeah, movie. I don't know that I had a favorite character, really. How dare you? You didn't love those terrible little children? Yeah, I was going to say the kids. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think they were yeah. all great characters. Uh, like, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't get so intensely emotionally invested in this whole Why? Story, like any of the characters. How dare you? I had a character who was a we favorite. We can live like Jack and Sally if we want. One thing that I thought was really interesting about the uh, the the doors to Halloween Town, or to, yeah, well, the, the, door, the door to Halloween Town and Christmas Town and all of that, is that the gate, like the gateway to all these other worlds is, it's just sitting there in the forest outside of town. I know, it's not far away. Like it's all, like he well, just went on a walk. He just went on a walk and discovered it. He went on a like a whole like he walked throughout the night and then just looked up and he was there. I've walked throughout the night before. Yeah. That's that's miles. I've never oh <laughs> I was gonna say I've never been to Christmas Town, but like the first thing that came to mind was that time me, Robin, you and I and one of our friends just kept walking north of our high school in the middle of the night. Yeah. And we came across that uh, the nuclear facility in our town yeah. and came to a sign that said, if you take another step, it's a $250,000 fine. So I guess you do come across things when you keep walking on. Yeah. 
which I think that's a great real life example of like if you just go outside of your comfort zone with how how much ennui Jack felt the fact that he had never even thought to go just a little bit outside of town to find these new doors is like I don't know for, for me sort of symbolically it's about how like insular and comfortable we can be yeah you know? like I'm definitely conflicted about the message we get from Jack because part of me is like get the fuck over it because he's the fucking king of pumpkin town. He has everything. It's Halloween town. Let's not let's not be crazy here. He's the pumpkin king. He's the king of the pumpkin patch. I really like the idea of when you are stuck in a rut and you feel disillusioned with your life, travel and seeing something new can really help. But then I feel like another part of the theme cuz he obviously mucks everything up and you keep sitting there going like, "Oh my god, just date Sally." um, and then that kind of ends up being the solution in the end is he turns to her and is like oh my god i never realized how like smart and cute and great you are but it does seem like a theme of that would maybe be when you are feeling disillusioned to turn to others rather than destroying Mm. christmas but then again i as much as i hate him destroying christmas and just being a boy all over it and I do kind of like the idea of take it into your own hands, do something new, something big. Yeah, well, I think those two are not mutually exclusive. I think it's they're supportive of each other. Like this this first thing is saying, you know, these door doorways like to other worlds. Look how easy it is to learn about new perspectives. But if you're going to be learning about new perspectives, then the next thing that happens is the song, What's This? He discovers Christmas Town. He discovers a new perspective and he's excited by it. But the things that he's pointing out about what's new about this place are the superficial elements. It's not the Christmas spirit. It's the ornamentation. It's the baubles. It's the candy canes and the lights. We know you hate baubles based on the last (laughs) Yeah, you bobble. (laughs) But like the things that he's pointing out, he says, there's singing everywhere he sings. He's already doing that. He's pointing out all of the things that are exactly the same as back home for him, as though they're new and exciting because of the superficial differences that he's seeing. They kiss? That is so unique. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. It's not, <laughs> it's not at all unique. Go kiss Sally. But so like, yeah. my thing is, if this, if he's so excited to discover new things... Why isn't he willing to take the time to actually get to know, to get to learn what it is that's exciting him about it? Right. I was so surprised how quickly he came back to Halloween Town. Yeah. Like he was just in Christmas Town for a hot second, took a bunch of stuff, and then came back. And that's kind of that's where, as a like a metaphor, the whole like cultural appropriation thing comes in. Right. Yeah, especially when this is like such a blat- this is such a blatant example because not only do they take over Christmas, they kidnap Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um hold him basically hostage even though that I don't think that that was Jack's intention, but and then they ruin Christmas. Yeah. The real world's news is talking about how like terrible this Christmas is and like stay inside, don't go outside your bedroom because there will be toys attacking you and we don't know what's happened, but Santa Claus has clearly given up on us. And, oh, Santy. Know. What is with, now I'm noticing this trope of the grumpy Santa Claus. <laughs> oh, yeah. In the stories, we are told about Santa Claus. He's always such a happy, jolly fellow. Huh. 
the, the last two movies we watched. Not not in this movie, not in the stupid Rudolph movie that was terrible. Though, to be fair, he had plenty of reason to be super grumpy in this movie. Yeah. And he, yes. And he was actually, I think, very forgiving the fact that he brought, like, Christmas to Halloween Town. Yeah. I thought was very sweet of him. There's an epilogue that didn't make it into the movie or the soundtrack. There's, like, an unofficial epilogue, but it was written by the same dudes where Santa comes back many years later to check on old Jack Skellington and he has millions not millions he has like four or five skeleton children skeleton ragdoll children yes I kind of want to talk about Sally again <laughs> okay what what else do you want to say about Sally? I don't have anything to say about her it's just like a thought that I want to see what you guys think about it the uh so Sally was created you know in a lab Mm-hmm. And then her defining characteristic is now that she wants to be her own person. She wants to have her own autonomy. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was very interesting. When you think about Dr. Finkelstein, what he's saying technically makes sense of like, he created you. You wouldn't exist yeah. if he didn't put leaves in a bag. But her defining characteristic is that she's restless and she wants to have her own individuality in life. I mean, I think that just tells you that like, once you put your creation out into the world, it's not just yours anymore. It can take on a life of its own, and you have to respect that life. Like, especially when you think about that in terms of, like, children. Once you make a little person, they're their own person, and you can do things to, you know, discipline and, like, teach them, but they are their own person, and you don't get to control who that is. Exactly. But that also applies to art. Like, once you once you create something... And it starts being consumed by other people. It's open to interpretation now. It's not just yours. You don't get to have a hardline stance on this is what this is. Yeah, George. Yeah, JK. Yeah. Bitches. Wait, who's George? Lucas. George Lucas. Oh. <laughs> and yeah, you can keep like adding to it and like no. making it more rich and more deep. But once it's taken on a life of its own it gets to grow and flourish in the way that it will. You don't get to go back 20 years later and decide that Han shot second. Yeah. Because it's not a stupid argument amongst geeks, okay? It's a fundamental part of this person's character. Mm-hmm. It's, it's important true. that he shot first. Han, he changed it because he's like, oh, I have kids now and I don't want Han Solo to have shot first. I want him to have shot in retaliation being shot at. No, it was important that Han Solo is the kind of person that shoots a guy at the bar. All right, so yeah. Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> Did anyone watch it? No. <laughs> nah, yeah, this is all from when I watched it in third grade. I, in my notes, the quote says, the next time you get the urge to take over someone's holiday, I'd listen to her. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really cool from several perspectives. First of all, you know, yeah, it's a grumpy Santa and it's okay. Like it's, it's saying like, yeah, you know what? It's okay to be angry in some situations, even if you're Santa, even if your people's perception of you is that you're the happy, jolly guy. And then also he points at Sally and says, I listened to her. That's like a very, fem- you know, just a feminist mm-hmm. quote. Next time, next time you feel like appropriating something, I'd listen to the women. It's kind of a nice moment of the person in power, the white male who's also 
Santa Claus, um, advocating for those who are right, who are not yeah. listened to. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to make it seem like, oh, the point is that, like, the only people whose voice matters are these guys and they have to speak up. I'm just saying, like, Sally. Yeah, it's, it's, it's nice to have that moment included. Also, peer-to-peer, where it's, uh, like, the, yeah. the boss the boss man white dude talking to another mm-hmm. boss man white dude like well because boss man white dude only listen right yeah dudes <laughs> listen to each other exactly yeah he didn't have to say anything he could have just no. like i didn't expect him to he could have just like grumble grumbled and left and instead he used that moment to validate someone who's validate Sally very and low teach. very very low on the social order in this town so that was my favorite part of the movie, actually, was when he said that. And it was a great teaching moment for Jack. It was, like, making him face his privilege for the mm-hmm. first time, perhaps, ever. Something else I like about Jack and Sally's relationship is um, when Jack is most attracted to her, because it happens a few times throughout the movie, it's when she is being really cunning. And I like that that's what he's attracted to in her, is that she is so smart. And doesn't just yeah. fawn over him like the others. And she's the only one who tells him he's doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. She's the only person who tells him, Jack, I don't think this is a good idea. Everybody else just falls into line behind him mm-hmm. and says, okay, I guess we're doing Christmas now. And I'm not I'm not a huge fan of the trope of, like, he likes you because you're the only one who stands up to him. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, but... I'm really tired, but I do think that makes them a good match. Because it means that she's intellectually on his level and has opinions and isn't afraid to speak. Yeah, that is exactly what I was thinking. Where it's because socially, we were talking about the hierarchy lately. Or what? I'm drunk. We were talking about the (laughs) we were talking about the hierarchy earlier. It's not explicitly said, you know, where Sally would fall, but she's got to be at the very bottom rung in this world. She's a bag of leaves. (laughs) Yeah, sewn together and given life. In love with the pumpkin king. Like, nobody takes Sally seriously. How sweet is that? <laughs> it's a bag of leaves and she's in love with the pumpkin king and she sings the saddest song. <laughs> oh. I, um, you know what modern romance is missing? What? The moment when you're standing on the really pretty precipice and your crush walks up to you and you sing about belonging together. <laughs> as a means to like say how you're feeling that they just start singing together i loved that do you think that nightmare before christmas it became extremely relevant when we were like in middle school because of emo culture yeah do you think that it was emo culture that fed the sudden relevancy of nightmare before christmas or do you think nightmare before christmas got us ready for the surge of emo culture That is a good question. This is something I really want to doctorate in, is why is was I culture? like this? <laughs> oh, interesting. Um, I hadn't even thought about that, so I need a second to percolate. Are you saying you that you think? don't think about this all day, every day? <laughs> no, I don't think about this all day, every day, but I might from now on. Yeah, I'm always wondering Wh- what why. What do you think, Catherine? Do you think that um, Nightmare Before Christmas like preempted emo culture, or do you think emo culture preempted Nightmare Before Christmas? The- um, yeah. the latter is very capitalist mm-hmm. and commercial. The former is very romantic to me, and I like and I really mm-hmm. like that. I want to think that it's and it fits with the theme of this podcast more of 
that the this media got us ready for that because nightmare before nightmare before christmas is just so absolutely emo bef- way yeah. 20 years 10 10 years before emo culture began. It's either just a coincidence and it's just like we got into this emo thing and we were like, oh, this thing we liked when we were kids fit with this really well. Let's put it at Hot Topic. Or it kind of got us ready when we were kids. I think it might be a mixture of both. Yeah, that's probably more likely. Because I think capitalism definitely played into it because anything that is popular will sell. And you know what? Nostalgia is something that sells like crazy. But you know, the emo thing, we weren't, it wasn't nostalgia culture yet. I don't know. I think, well, I want to add that it was. No, because we didn't get into this 90s thing until recently. No, no, not that kind of thing. But there was like, because all of those emo kids were just coming into coming of age into this emo thing. Because Robin, were you emo? No, no not in the least. <laughs> Let I'm, me, I'm um, so Madison. Were you fucking? This issue. Were you fucking there? <laughs> no, I didn't know Robin in middle school. Oh, I did. Yeah, I did not. I didn't know you guys until sophomore year of high school. And I was an emo until I was a sophomore. Mm-hmm. I was in emo sixth grade. I think I started like sixth grade and then until like f- was finishing off in 10th grade. <laughs> I think I finished off in, in freshman year of high school. I like if anyone called me an emo, I got really mad about it. I was like, I'm a punk, which like I had no reason to say. And now <laughs> now it's like a badge I wear of pride that like I was an emo for years. Yeah. It's one of my favorite things about my past was that I was a die. I was a fucking emo. Yeah, but, like, so a lot of the the emos had seen this movie as a kid, and it was, like, this dark and twisty thing that they really enjoyed from their childhood, and then it made a resurgence, and it fit so well within what they were feeling and experiencing then, what we were feeling and experiencing then, mm-hmm. that it just made this huge comeback. Because, and, and, and I don't want people to argue with us, like, oh, that didn't cause it, because, like... We should do an episode just about emo culture. <laughs> we should. Because uh, there's a, a big part of it was 9-11, as ridiculous as that sounds. But, like, 9-11 is what created My Chemical Romance. Like, mm. s- specifically, it was Gerard Way sitting in a ferry watching people falling out of the two towers that created My Chemical Romance. Yeah. So it was it was a huge reaction to the Bush administration and 9-11 that created this, like, very dark alternative fad but i think maybe that had a little added flavor like it that's what flavored the direction we went maybe was things like nightmare before christmas yeah it added it added cultural context to what we were experiencing where it's like okay all the kids are gonna go dark here for a second because it's dark times yeah and (laughs) uh the way we went was like very these emotional poetry ridden crying <laughs> things <laughs> i'm feeling very called out right now as opposed to you know like 90s grunge or like actual punks and stuff like that it was like we we become these you know we wore kitty cat ears and cried about our feelings <laughs> and wrote so many <laughs> poems on deviant art yeah and- <laughs> 
<laughs> oh my god we should because like we did that episode about stan lee so i don't think it's too much of a stretch if like we did just like a really good episode on like what possibly created emo culture because i don't think there's that much scholarly work on what what happened there i don't either what do you listeners think what 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 do you guys think you should let us know in uh any comments in twitter in facebook in tumblr in instagram what do you think should we do an episode on like the emo. evolution of emo culture emo kids because uh, i was trying to find something definitive like i was like someone must have written a scholarly article about this right about like the uh tie from nightmare before christmas coming out in 1993 and then kind of the height of emo culture being like 2006 through 2009-ish mm-hmm. and really no like BuzzFeed made a jokey article of like how it got us ready it was like just about Jack and Sally had a really dramatic relationship and shit like <laughs> huh and I was like no I want I want someone's fucking thesis paper on this yeah how about Tim Burton we haven't talked about him at all we haven't that's true um does anybody listening not know who Tim Burton is? Because if you don't, get out. I don't care if you don't know who he is. It doesn't offend me. <laughs> I mean, it's not that I have an affinity for Tim Burton, but he has had so many, like, he had so many films in our childhood age. I don't care. Um... I'm not... Not even one of them? You don't even like one of them? I like, maybe... I don't know. It's been a long time since I've seen Edward Scissorhands. I remember really liking it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I have so many movies of his that annoy the fuck out of me. Ooh, which ones are those? Uh, Alice in Wonderland. Dark Shadows. Yeah. yeah. What the fuck else has he made? It's mostly Alice in Wonderland bugs me so much. It's like Charlie and the Chocolate Charlie Factory. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Oh my god. Yeah, it's yep. it's like I wasn't on the train when I was young of like his good movies. I mean, Tim Burton also made James and the Giant Peach, which was good. Scared me. Yeah, it scared oh, me too. I, I that loved I being scared. What else did he make? Batman Returns, uh 9, Big Eyes, Planet of the Apes, Sleepy Hollow big fish i like big fish i like big fish but the thing with big fish is that it's not overly tim burton yeah it's 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 the same problem i have with what's his fucking name the royal tenenbaums wes anderson yeah that i really Mm -hmm. like his earlier movies but it's like the more auteur he gets and the more people just let him do whatever he wants it gets just over the fucking top their aesthetic and that's what really bugs me with tim burton Mm -hmm. and what really because i i i hate charlie the chocolate factory i hate uh alice in wonderland just think there's shit Mm -hmm. fucking movies that are just all his aesthetic and nothing else and his aesthetic his aesthetic is overdone to the point that it's not appealing anymore it's just being aware that you're watching a tim burton movie yeah and yeah yeah and uh, then what did it for me was like him at the Oscars for something and him and Helena Bonham Carter were looking bananas and they were just like <laughs> and it, the camera went to them and they were sitting really low in their seats like just like very low this is when they're like still what? together and like leaning together and like laughing and I'm like they think they're so much better than us 
<laughs> that's what was like the end for me with Tim Burton. I was like 17 and I was just like, I'm over it. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck you, Tim Burton. Get back in line, sir. Oh, God, you guys, he's doing Dumbo next it year. Sounds awful. That sounds so awful. I heard Frankenweenie was good, but like, I mean, I like. I haven't seen I like Big Fish, but that was years and years and years ago. I I can't think mm. of like any. I didn't like Sweeney Todd. I didn't like Sweeney Todd either, but mostly because I'd read the musical before I watched the movie, and I liked the musical better. Yeah, so it's just all of his recent stuff is just like, I'm Tim Burton, I'm making a movie, here's my stamp. I also liked Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Children. I liked Sleepy Hollow also. To be fair, so he didn't direct this movie. No, he produced it. He produced it and wrote a lot of the script and designed the characters. Mm -hmm. And he has argued that that makes him the owner of the movie, even though someone else directed it. God damn, I hate him. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. and that That made me aggressively angry. He didn't write it. He had a large portion of... He, like, he had an influence on a large portion of the script. Like, Mm. he wrote part of the script. He didn't write the script and hand it in. But, like, if he had... If he had been the screenwriter and also like an executive producer i could see some arguments that he's making but only because he's a more well-known name like that argument would never fly in any other it's it's a huge argument of like who owns a movie who had and this is like the official title of this movie is tim burton's the nightmare before christmas (laughs) like they added that to the title um, we didn't say that one time in this episode. No, because no one says that. Because <laughs> fuck that. <laughs> but if you look at the poster, that's not just saying Tim Burton. It's the title of the movie. And they just thought that people would come and see it more. So they really tried to sell the... Yeah. But uh, the director, who I I forget his name... Well, I can tell you who it is. It's Henry Selick. Henry Selick. But he... They worked on this for like... It was, like, two or three years in, like, San Francisco. It was three yeah, years. Yeah, and he yeah. said that, like, Tim Burton was on set maybe eight days. Oh, yeah. God. And as... But he says, you know, like, I designed the characters, and I wrote a lot of the script, and I produced, but it's, like, eh... I think the guy who was there for three years probably had more of a hand in it. Yeah. I mean, it took three years to make this movie because it was uh, stop motion, and just, like, my favorite moments of this movie were, like, him walking up the hill with the moon behind it. My favorite part of this movie is honestly how it's lit at night because of the full moon. That's so... Yeah. Oh, my gosh. The lighting, when I was watching that, the making of The Nightmare Before Christmas, uh-huh. they had, like, 30 lights and at, at, at any time. Yeah. And if any of them got knocked, because, like, it could take you know, nine days to film one scene. Uh, If any of them got knocked, they had to start over. Yeah, I read something about, like, if one frame was, like, corrupted, they would have to just, they would just throw it out and they'd redo the whole thing. Yeah. Do we want to do a sign out? Yeah, does anyone have any last thoughts? Um, In the scene where everything's going wrong on Christmas, where Jack is running around, there's a line where he says, they're celebrating! Aww. (laughs) (laughs) And I was just like, if we're talking about cultural appropriation and the in- inherent narcissism of it, you th- where you just kind of are going to assume that people think that pe- you're doing people a favor and that they're just right. going to like you for it. You also just think that people should 
like you deserve to be thanked for the services you're doing. The note says gross misinterpretation of reality, all at Trump. <laughs> <laughs> that was oh, that was Jack. that was Yuck. a you know final scra scraggly line. What a lovely note to end on. <laughs> This and every episode of our podcast ep episodes um, <laughs> features the song Enthusiasts by Tours. To make a suggestion, tweet the name of your favorite television show, movie, book, video game, person, what the fuck ever, to at Grow the Pod Up with a brief message about why it was meaningful to you. These days, we're trying something new, so if we use your suggestion for an episode, if and only if, we will send you a neat and nifty grow-up sticker. Uh, just for you. Yeah, just you. You, only you. You and no one else. You cannot share. If you really want to go the extra mile, you can send us a voice message with your suggestion. Send that to growthepotup at gmail.com. You've been listening to Grow Up, a Saturday morning podcast with Maddie Gray, Robin Kopic, Skeleton Jack, the Pumpkin King. <laughs> do you like what you hear? Oh boy, we hope so. <laughs> if you do, please leave us a, rev a review on iTunes for realsies because um, we need more of those. Or you can leave us a review on our Facebook page. You can share our podcast with your friends. You can donate to our Patreon. You can follow us on your favorite social media platform. If you give us a review, we'll put your name in the witching jar. Yeah, just, yeah, do something to share it. Give us physical evidence. We'll put your name in the witching jar. Put your name in the witching jar. Follow us on all the pro social media. Donate to Patreon. You get your name in the, name the witching, in the witching jar. jar. Any of Money, things. name in the witching jar. <laughs> Why do you get two names? Anyways, you, you can guard. follow Four. us at Grow the Pot Up on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook. Join yeah, us yeah, next time. Yeah, yeah. That was incredible. Join us next time for yeah, Fern yeah, Gully. Yeah, yeah. Goodbye. <laughs> I got you so good. <laughs> Ooh, you got got. I got so got. <laughs>